0: It is estimated that over six billion Bibles are in circulation throughout the world today, by far the best-selling book of all time. But why should we read it? We live in a culture where very few are familiar with this book. It can be intimidating and hard to understand. Many feel it's an archaic book that doesn't relate to modern day life. Could it be possible that God desires to transform us through his written word? Join us as we discover together all the Bible has to offer. Well, on
1: Sundays, um, I usually wake up around 4 a.m. and uh, get into the office about 4, 25, 4, 30, and work on putting my notes together for Sunday mornings, kind of those finishing touches and stuff. And so this morning, I woke up at 6.20 and uh, because I wasn't supposed to speak. Um, Clint Ettinger was supposed to speak, and, uh, and he was all set to do it. And then I woke up at 6.20 this morning and rolled over, and I had a string of text on my phone, and I learned that Clint came down with appendicitis middle of the night last night. And uh, he was actually, uh, he was in surgery a couple hours ago. They're taking out his appendix, and I realized also, oh, I guess I'm speaking this morning. So... <laughs> So uh, you guys are slumming it with me, okay? You get the backup today, um, but uh, we are in week two of our series Why Bible. In fact, hold on, let me stop right quick. Let's pray for Clint and, uh, and, and Kirsten and his family and his little daughter Callie before we go any further. I almost forgot to do that. Um, God, thank you for this morning, and I thank you that you are with us even in our times of distress and in our times of pain. And Lord, we pray right now that you would be with Clint and uh, you would just, if the doctors are if they're still doing surgery, God, just guide their hands and bring healing to his body. Be with Kirsten as she's been up all night. Help her to get some rest. Um, and uh, and, and, and um, I pray for, for Callie too, God, that you would just be with her as she is with some friends. And Lord, I pray that the, the end of this day as they get to go home, hopefully, uh, God, I pray that you would just wrap your arms around them, let them know how loved they are, and uh, let them know that we miss them. And also, God, just bring healing to Clint's body. In your holy name, amen. So um, we are in week two of our series called Why Bible? And um, I will just tell you this, over the years of doing ministry, um, I have heard all kinds of reasons, and we're talking decades, I've heard all kinds of reasons of why people don't read this book, including followers of Jesus, why they don't read the Bible. Um, and I'll just tell you, they are valid reasons, okay? It's hard to read at times. There's parts of the Bible that are really difficult to work your way through. Um, it, it, it's intimidating. I mean, this is a lot of a lot lot of words and they're very very small um, and you have to it, there's a it's, it's a very thick book and they, they use these little thin pages and little bitty type and so it's very intimidating to think okay where do I start what do I do how do I read this book um, a lot of people have questions about the Bible is it is it like really important to read it do you have to have a Bible and read it to, to like have faith um, what does this have to do with my life or what are like there are a lot of rules in the Bible we have all kinds of questions maybe you've felt that way Maybe you've picked up the Bible and you've tried to read it and you just quit. Um, like anybody feel that way? You just you tried and you just quit. You're like, this is too much. I don't know what to do. nowhere where to go. That's totally okay. I think those are very valid reasons um, to not read it. And then others of us, we don't read it and we know we should, but we feel guilty and we carry a lot of a lot of that with us. Um, maybe you're a skeptic here. And maybe you're going, is that really the word of God, seriously? Like you guys believe that God wrote that book and you believe that it, that it is what it was written like thousands of years ago. And, and maybe you're sitting here going, that book's a it, it's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo that people wrote to keep people in line and to oppress people. And I've, I've heard that a lot of times. Well, you just need to, to know that I'm excited that you're here if you're a skeptic. Because you're checking out this God thing, and this book is a big deal when it comes to the God thing. And I will just tell you a little bit about it, about what we believe. You need to know our faith, Christian faith, is based on the the words and the writings in this book. We believe this is the Word of God. We believe that, that God wrote this book through people to us. And we believe that it's a love letter. It's his love letter to us. Hopefully today it will start to make a little bit of sense because what we're attempting to do in four weeks is give you a seminary course on the Bible in four weeks, okay? So we're we're like flying through, covering a lot of ground. And I just want to ask you to, to take notes today. Um, it's a big deal. Um, and what here's? let me just tell you what my goal is at the end of today and the end of this series. My hope is that we can actually get you to a place where you want to read this book and you want to study this book and you can understand what's in this book and you even know how to attack this book because I believe in this book are words of life and words of truth and words of love from your heavenly father, whether you know him as that or not, to you specifically. And I'll just tell you this, here's why this is so important to me that you get in this book on your own. It's one thing to come here and, and have God's word taught to you in a little half hour message and hear a couple of passages. That's, that's, that's a way to understand what's in this book and see what's in this book. But it is a completely different experience when you go take this book and you open it and God speaks to you through his word. See, it's one thing when I speak to you through God's word. It's a completely different experience when you're reading this on your own and suddenly God grabs your heart and makes words jump off this page and you realize he's talking to you through his word. It's that powerful. He wrote this for you. And so my goal is to not just have you come here for a half hour or an hour service and a half hour of teaching. It's to get you in this book every day of the week. God wants to talk to you every day. I wanna get you in it. And so today, um, I keep putting this book down. I'm just going to hold it for a while. Um, Today, we are going to hit a very daunting part of the Bible, and it's a very large chunk called the Old Testament. Okay, If you go into your Bible and you open it up about two-thirds of the way through, you have the New Testament on the right, the Old Testament on your left. The Old Testament is a lot more than the New Testament. Um, And so today we're gonna cover the Old Testament. Next week we're gonna cover the New Testament. And uh, I will tell you, um, uh, this Bible can be very difficult to understand without context. And so today I will hopefully give you context and overview of the Old Testament and how it connects to the New Testament because they're connected. The Old Testament is actually speaking about what is coming in the New Testament. And so to get our mind, wrapped around this idea that there is a theme that goes throughout the whole of Scripture. Um, There's this uh, thing called the Bible Project. uh, It's a couple of guys that through animation tell the stories in the Bible to help us understand it. And we thought it'd be really cool to kind of get our brains thinking on an overview of the New Testament through one of their videos they did to try and explain the Old Testament and a little bit about how it points to the New Testament. So let's check this out together.
0: The Bible is one long epic narrative with multiple movements or acts. The Old Testament recounts the first series of acts that give you everything you need to make sense of the story to follow. The core themes and the plot conflict are arranged in design patterns. And then in the New Testament, these are all picked up and carried forward to the story's culmination in Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. The first act is about God and all humanity. God provides a sweet garden temple for humans who are made to be God's partners in ruling the world. But the humans are foolish and they give in to a dark temptation and rebel against God's wisdom. So they're exiled into a wilderness where they start killing each other. They build cities that spread their selfishness and oppression leading up to the big bad city of Babylon. But God loves the world and its foolish humans, so he sets in motion a rescue plan by promising the arrival of a new human who will destroy the evil that has lured us into self-destruction. The next act of the biblical story is about God and Israel, and it develops the themes and patterns of the first act. God calls a new humanity out of Babylon into a sweet garden land, Abraham, Sarah, and his descendants, the Israelites. God promises that through them, divine blessing will be restored to all of the nations. Surely, these are the new humans that we're waiting for. But the Israelites repeat humanity's rebellion against God, building their own violent cities that lead to self-destruction and another exile in Babylon. But God sustains his promise that the new human will come from Abraham's lineage. It will be a priest-king who will now have to rescue both Israel and humanity from Babylon to restore God's blessing to the world. Now, notice how these two acts are designed according to the same pattern. The second act is a longer and more violent version of the first, and together they explore the tragic human condition. But they also highlight God's promise, which is developed more in the next act, the Old Testament prophets and poets. The prophets accused Israel and all nations of their evil, and they announced that one day, God himself would arrive to bring the day of the Lord and deliver his world from Babylon. He would do it through a promised royal priest, who's going to suffer like a slave and die for the sins of Israel and all humanity, but then he'll be exalted as king over the nations. He will call others to leave Babylon and join the new covenant people, who will partner with God to rule over a new Jerusalem, that is, over a new creation. And so the Old Testament concludes by anticipating a new act in the story.
1: Okay, since uh, I just got this at 6.40, we're done. Thanks, let's pray, and uh, we'll walk out of here. You guys got the overview. I'm just kidding. Actually, Clint did a great job putting together some great notes, but th- that video really um, is about the story of God, and uh, it kind of sets you up in the Old Testament to kind of go, oh, there's some themes running through the Testament. There's a story that is weaved through the entire Old Testament that I want to kind of share with you today, because more, well, one thing you're gonna find out um, about the Bible is the Bible is a story about his story, God's story. It's about God's story in man's, and let me say that again. The Bible is a story about his story, God's story. The Bible is a story about his story. Um, the Bible is a story about his story. Um, the Bible is a story of history. The Bible is a story of history of God's story and his love and creation of man, and the fall of mankind, and the redemption that God brings through Jesus, and the, the consummation at the end of all days where Jesus returns to earth. The Bible is history, it's God's story. And when you look, look at the Old Testament, it's not written chronologically in order, it's actually got a flow. To us of a story, it's got to flow to a story, and so we said it last week. I just said it to you. It begins with creation, then the fall, and redemption, and consummation. And so today we're gonna we're gonna kind of run through the Old Testament. Um, Two thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. We're gonna run through it, and I'm gonna give you ten icons, and we're gonna make ten stops. And here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to take notes um, in your program. If you take out that insert and turn it over, there are some fill in the blanks that I want you to fill in. And here's what I need you to do. If If you do not have that insert and a pen to write with, because it's important that we take notes, we're going to cover so much ground, I want you to walk out of here with this. Would you raise your hand, and we will bring you a program and a pen. If you do not have a pen and something to write on, raise your hand. We want to take care of you right now, because I want you to be able to follow along. Okay, there's a couple down here and some back there. Thank you. Just keep your hands raised until we get you both. But I want you to be able to follow along and take some notes. This is going to be important stuff that we're covering, and we're going to cover it quickly. Okay, so... As we jump into the Old Testament... Uh, you saw it on the screen there. There's 39 books written by 28 authors, and it was written over 1,000 to 2,000 years. It's a very long time span that the Old Testament was written. In contrast, the New Testament, which we're going to get to next week, was written um, over 100 years, okay? So you got two up to 2,000 years the Old Testament was written over. Um, the Old Testament, what's interesting about the Old Testament, it is, it is really the New Testament concealed. It kind of points to the New Testament, but it's kind of concealed. It's kind of obscured, but it's pointing to the New Testament. Testament. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, where all of a sudden when you read the New Testament, you go, oh, that's what the Old Testament and all the prophets and the writers of the Old Testament were talking about. It's very important. So it's very important to understand the Old Testament. Jesus, when he was on this earth and taught, um, he referenced the Old Testament. He was an expert in the Old Testament, and he would reference verses. Um, Paul would do the same thing. And I'll just tell you this, um, most evangelical churches, and this is why we're spending a whole day on the Old Testament. Most evangelical churches, which is what we are, um, really only nine of the 10 messages are out of the New Testament. So we go, hey, let's take a whole day, talk about the Old Testament. We're going to move quickly. Um, and this is what I want you to be looking for. At every stop we take, every icon is going to be like a stop along the journey of the Old Testament. I want you to be looking for something um, because on almost every page of the Old Testament, um, there, you need to be looking for Jesus. At every stop we make in the Old Testament, we're going to be looking for Jesus at every stop. And it's kind of like this, um, uh, hidden Mickeys at Disney. Um, how many of you have ever seen a hidden Mickey? Okay, how many of you have never heard of a hidden Mickey? Okay, yeah, so there's a few of I've never heard. So anyways, from what I'm told, because I've never seen one, um, there's hidden Mickeys all over Disney. Okay, and if you know where to look and when you're at the right time and you look for it, you can actually see them. I've never seen one, even though people have said, look here and here, never done it. So um, it's kind of like this. When you're reading the Old Testament, um, if you're looking for him, you can see Jesus all the time through the Old Testament. And you're, hopefully you'll do better than I do looking for hidden Mickeys, even though I know they're there. Now I look for them. I still can't find them. But if you read the Old Testament and you're looking for them, you can actually find Jesus. And so I want you to be looking for Jesus at each one of these stops. And I'll point them out a few times throughout the, the, the 10 stops we make. But here is a theme that runs throughout the entire Old Testament, and that is this. God takes our mess and makes it his masterpiece. God takes our mess and makes it his masterpiece. And I'm gonna say that a number of times throughout this message because the theme of the Old Testament is God takes our mess and he makes it his masterpiece. So let's jump into the first of our 10 icons um, is this picture. Um, It is of an apple and I have no idea um, who that is standing next to the apple. So I'm gonna say it's Clint's cousin. So Clint's cousin standing next to a big apple. um, That is kind of our icon for our first stop in the journey. It's creation in the fall of man. And we don't have the details, but we, you know, scripture tells us God made creation and then he made us men and women, man in his image. And we don't know how long it took. Um, the Bible, uh, Bible says it, it took days, and we don't know if the days in the beginning of Scripture were 24-hour days or if each day was a 1,000 years or longer. We don't know, but it says that, that, that God created man. What we do know is He made us for relationship with Him, and He gave us free will. And that is a huge part of, of, uh, of, of who we are. And let me just put it this way, um, and this is what I say when it comes to free will, and we're talking about it. If you take away our free will we cease to be human beings. Okay, let me say that again. If you take away our free will, we are not human anymore. That free will piece of us is part of our humanity because we were made to be in relationship, love relationship with God and with other people. If you take choice away from us, we can no longer love. If all you can do is love me and you don't have the choice to not love me, that's not love. Love requires a choice. Love requires me of my own free will choosing to love you or not. So God, we are made in his image. God has free will. He has given us free will. Now, has that been our undoing? Pretty much. Okay. So, um, but for us to be in love relationship with God, he had to give us free will so we could choose him or not. Now, God told Adam and Eve his way. Okay, they say he said, Eat from every tree in the garden that I put you in, tens of thousands, maybe millions of trees, fruits, vines, whatever. Eat from all of them, except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that represent? Our free will, the fact that he gave them a choice. He said, look, if you eat of this this tree, then you're going to die and it's going to break our relationship. If you don't, then we will be like this forever in relationship where you're choosing to love me and I love you. But Adam and Eve, of course, they choose to do life on their own way, uh, in their own way, and they eat the fruit. They chose to become rulers of their own lives, which is what we do all the time, isn't it? So here's the beginning of sin. In your notes, you've got some fill in the blanks there. God tells us his way, and we choose our own way. Sin is really simple. God tells us his way, and we choose our own. And just in case you're thinking, what a couple of screw ups those two were, you know, it's like I always think, gosh, it's got to be terrible to be Adam and Eve in heaven. There's probably a long line of people going, uh, 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 uh. but here's the reality how many times in your life have you done the same thing? You've known exactly what the right thing to do is, and you've chosen not to do it. You've known exactly how to love the person that you're in relationship with, and you choose to not do it. I'll tell you one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten um, was from Steve Andrews as far as parenting goes. He spoke a couple weeks ago. He's a spiritual mentor in my life. He just was in a message one day 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, and he was just speaking about his kids and how frustrated he was with them, and he talked about how long it took him to realize that his kids... Struggled with the same sin nature that he did. See, we expect if you're a parent here, you expect your kids to be perfect, right? They're my offspring, they should be awesome. And then they screw up, and our standards for them are here. I couldn't have been more clear to tell you exactly what you were supposed to do, and you chose not to do it. And it's just like until he realized that, it was kind of an eye-opener for me of going, oh my gosh, in my, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 29 years old this year. Um, I'm just kidding. It's like in my, in my age, I'm, I'm in my 40s, I still struggle. I still struggle with sin. I still struggle with knowing exactly what I should do and not doing it. And why should they be any different? We're no different than Adam and Eve, and that's what the beginning of our story is, is God initiates relationship. He makes Adam and Eve. He gives them a choice, gives us a choice. And then Adam and Eve and we, we fail, and time and time again, we fail, we fail, we fail. So what did God do to rescue Adam and Eve? And this is just so beautiful. And Jesus is beginning to show up in the Old Testament. Um, God could have left Adam and Eve on their own. God could have just said, okay, um, I'm holy, you're not, I'm out. We will never have a relationship anymore. He could have been very uh, punishing to them. He should have said, okay, drop him, give me 50. You know, it's like he could have done that and then we'll be good, which is what religion is, by the way, um, earning God's favor by making ourselves, trying to make ourselves holy. Um, But God did something that began to reveal a shadow of redemption and atonement and begin to reveal what was coming. See, Adam and Eve were naked in the Garden of Eden, and when they sinned, they immediately knew it. They didn't know they were naked before, but suddenly they began to experience shame and guilt. And when God found out what they did, rather than punish them and hurt them, now there were consequences to their action, but rather than him do that, what you find that he did is he actually went and he killed an innocent animal and covered them in the animal's skin. He gave them clothing to cover their shame and their guilt. That's what God did. An innocent animal actually had to die to cover Adam and Eve's shame and guilt. Which is foreshadowing what? John the Baptist says, here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. In Genesis chapter 3, we're already being foreshadowed that Jesus is coming, a Savior for us all, who will die innocently to cover our shame and guilt. Isn't that incredible? Chapter 3 of Genesis, you already see Jesus starting to show up. So God takes their mess and takes our mess and makes it his masterpiece. And what happens from there is God chooses a family to start making his masterpiece. Um, this is how he's going to bring about his redemption. And he reveals a little bit more of his plan by choosing a family that the Savior would come from. Um, and that is Abraham. Our next icon is uh, Abraham, Father Abraham. And that cave is actually where um, they believe that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was actually buried um, in the Old Testament. So we kind of, the interesting thing about the Bible is you go through the Old Testament, historically, you can go find archaeological sites where the events happened. That's, I think that's why God put all the details in Scripture that He did, is so that. That we could actually go and go, oh, that's what was going on right here where I'm standing. It's really fascinating. But there's a song that goes with Father Abraham, right? All right, anybody, grow up in church, I want you to sing this with me. Father Abraham had many sons, sing along, many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord, right arm, Father Abraham. Okay, that's how it goes. Um, in fact, we're going to sing that at the end of the service, together. Okay, I'm just kidding. Um, But uh, here's the deal. Um, God chooses Abraham and makes a promise to him. He says, Abraham, all the nations, because you you are holy, Abraham loved God. Because you love God, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to bless your descendants, and I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants who are going to be too many to count. Now, Abraham and Sarah couldn't even have kids at the time, but God's saying, hey, here's my promise. You're gonna have more kids and more descendants than you could even count, and the whole world's gonna be blessed through you. And what you find is that Abraham's family, as you read about Abraham's family, it is messed up, man. Like Abraham's family is jacked up, just like yours and mine. Maybe mine a little more than yours, um, but they're just just messed up. And you can read about them. But here's the deal: God still, in His mercy, used the imperfect people in Abraham's family to impact all of us, to save the world. And part of this icon is, is, is that the same is true with us. God uses imperfect people, to impact his kingdom. God uses imperfect people like you and me to impact his kingdom. I'm proof of that. I'm evidence that God uses imperfect people. Um, Just ask my wife and kids how perfect I am. (laughs) And then after you finish meeting with them, we'll do counseling together, okay? Um, It's just one of those things where it's like, I'm I'm as imperfect as they come, yet God can still use me just like he can use you to impact the people around you. So throughout the Old Testament, God, time and time again, uses imperfect people to impact the world. And so here is um, what your fill-in-the-blanks are. God can use anyone. God can use anyone. And when we say yes, he uses us to impact others for his kingdom. God can use anyone. Any one of you God can use. And when you say yes to him, he will use you to impact other people for his kingdom, for good. So I just say, you say yes to Jesus in your life and you watch what he does. You watch the ripple effect your life begins to have that will ripple on into eternity. Now, this stop ends with one of the more famous stories in the Old Testament, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that um, uh, that story, but Joseph is actually, so it's one of Abraham's descendants. He is sold in slavery by his brothers. He has 11 brothers. They hate him so much, they sell him into slavery. He ends up being enslaved in Egypt. His whole family eventually joins him because he becomes one of the leaders in Egypt. Um, Joseph and uh, his descendants and families grow so large that they begin being enslaved by Egypt because Egypt was afraid of them, the Israelites, and the entire nation of Israel ends up for 430 years in slavery. Then God chooses Moses to lead them out of slavery. All right, how many of you guys saw the movie? You know what Moses did. He went to, um, he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, you know, and Pharaoh didn't want to, and there's this whole deal, but the, the icon for this part of the Bible is broken chains, It's broken chains because God always provides a way out. So Moses comes in and he frees the Israelites from slavery. Um, He is a Christ figure. One man God called to lead people to freedom. He's a shadow of what's to come in Jesus in the New Testament. They leave, they cross the Red Sea, God frees them. Moses goes to Mount Sinai, gets the Ten Commandments, um, and comes down off the mountain. um, And uh, and then God gives Moses uh, the schematics for a tabernacle so that God can travel with them in this big tent that they would set up every time they stopped, so that he could be with them, his presence could be with them. And uh, so often, kind of what I want to finish this this, uh, icon with, is so often we see God's laws as restrictive and repressive. Like Those 10 commandments, those are laws to keep us down, to put us under God's thumb, to make us feel bad, to show us how shame and guilty we should be, Um, when really what you find is that God's laws, we find life if we're to live them out. Like God's like, hey, follow these laws and you'll find life, the life I meant for you to live. And so here's what your fill in the blank is, God's commands are freeing and life-giving. What were those 10 commandments for? When Moses came off the mountain, God was just saying, hey, follow these commandments. It keeps our relationship strong follow these commandments. It'll keep you from, from sinning. It'll keep you from being destroyed. It'll keep you heading down the right path. And so often we see God's laws and the rules and like, oh my gosh, it's so oppressive. God doesn't want me to have any fun when really God's just saying, no, I want to keep you from not having fun. I want you to have a blast. So I've got boundaries that I want you to follow. So God's commands are freeing and life-giving. That's what you find in, in this uh, part of the Bible. Next icon. Are you guys doing okay? You keep it up? It's good. I know I'm talking really fast and I'm talking a lot. So, okay, we're going to go on to the next icon. The next icon is real estate. His <clears throat> um, kind of idea is, is uh, God always provides. This is, uh, I believe, that is uh, Jerusalem. That is the land that God had promised to give them that he told Moses about. Um, God takes them right to the edge of the promised land. And then Moses and some of the leaders disobey God again. After all he had done, he had got them through the Red Sea. He took out Pharaoh's army, had been leading them towards a promised land. And then Moses gave in to the people's fear and worry, and they sin against God. And the the punishment for that, again, God still loves him, but the punishment was Moses, you and your entire generation aren't going to see the promised land you're not going to see the promised land. I'm sorry, but you chose to sin against me. And so consequences, because there's always consequences to sin, his consequences where you're not going to get to see what I promised you. with. So they wander around in the desert for 40 years. And I'm just thinking, I know they wandered in around for 40 years. I think part of that was because they were being led by men and men will never stop and ask for directions. Okay. That's what the deal was there. So they spent 40 years, never asked for directions. Their disobedience leads to them wandering. Well, then God, um, God raises up Joshua to lead them into the land. And God tells Joshua, Joshua, he's the next generation. All of Moses' generation dies off. And Joshua, um, he says, Joshua, I want you to go into the promised land. And I want you to wipe out everything that's pagan. Take out everything that's pagan there that's not God-honoring, that is not of me. I want you to, re- want you to get rid of all of it. And, uh, and here's what they do. They do it almost. Almost. They don't fully complete the job. Um, it's kind of like this. Um, how many of you guys have kids? Can see your hands. How many of you guys have kids? Oh, I don't know. Have you ever asked them to do something? This has probably never happened to you. This happens in my family. Have you ever asked them to do something and they only partially do it? <laughs> Anybody? Does that make you happy? Does, don't you just don't you go, man, I love them. They're the best. No, it doesn't, right? You're like, how simple can I make it? Like for, for us, it's like, can you go pick up the dog poop in the backyard? Like period, that's it. And inevitably you go out there and you expect all the poop to be gone. Is all the poop gone? No, it's not gone because they didn't go over every square inch of it, you know? And so you end up having to go along beside uh, or behind them, uh, but it drives you crazy. And here's why that drives you crazy as a parent. Um, it's because this partial obedience, this is your fill in the blank, partial obedience, is disobedience. This is something we kind of got to understand. It's like partial obedience is disobedient. If you only do two-thirds of what I'm asking you to do, and I'm asking you to be obedient, then you're disobedient if you don't finish the job. Well, here, let me just put it in context as far as um, how big of a deal this is, especially with God. Let me just ask you this. If I am partially faithful To my wife. If I am partially faithful to my wife, am I faithful to her? No. If I'm partially faithful to my wife, is our relationship in good standing? No. Why? Because partial obedience is just disobedience. and We do that with God all the time. He says, hey, I want to have a great relationship with you, and I want you to be faithful to me. And we just partially obey. We're just partially faithful because he asked us to do some things that we just really don't want to. Nobody else is doing it, and, and I don't even know if it's going to work out better if I do it your way than my way. So we just partially obey. Well, I'm just telling you this. If you play around with partial obedience, it will become your legacy. It'll become your legacy. And that's what we find out in this part of Scripture. Let's go to the next icon, referees. Now, that is the referee on Thanksgiving Day, when the Lions win at the end of the game, just saying, the other team sucks, okay? That's what that is. Um... Uh, but God, God th- this idea is God always sends help, okay? Uh, the Israelites and the people of, of, uh, of God couldn't follow him on their own. They needed help. So God sends them judges or referees. You've got Samson, Samuel, Gideon, Deborah. Um, the theme for the judges period is this. Um, it's Judges 17, verse 6. Um, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? How many people do you know? We're just doing right with whatever in our own eyes. We think this is the right thing to do, so this is what we're gonna do. And what that gets us is it gets us into the spin cycle of rebellion. And let me give you this spin cycle, except for we're gonna take out the P and we're gonna call it the sin cycle of rebellion. Here's the sin cycle. You can fill it in on your notes. It's knowing right, choosing wrong, falling down, and then being forgiven and restored by God. It's knowing right, choosing wrong falling down as we always do when we choose wrong, and then being forgiven and restored by God. That was Israel's cycle that they were on. So God began to send them judges to do what? To help them, to help them. He gave them people to go, hey, this is right and this is wrong, and to kind of help with disputes. It's just like you and me. We need accountability. If we're going to actually follow and get off of the sin cycle, we need people to help us do what we know is right. That's called accountability. We need people to walk with us, to keep us from stepping on the landfalls, the, the, the landmines that Satan wants to put in our way or that life throws our way. That's why we need to be in small groups. Like if you're not in a small group, we're trying to open up three new small groups. You can call them life groups where we're just doing life together. Um, and rather than sitting in a, in a row, we're sitting in a circle. Um, I've always heard it. Spiritual growth happens better in circles than rows. Meaning if you get in somebody's home and you circle up with them and you talk about God's word, you will grow more than you will sitting in the row that you're sitting in. And so we're going to try and open up three or four new small groups in January with a new series. Be looking for that. I would love for you to be a part of that. But eventually for Israel, God sends the judges, it's not enough. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king. All the nations around them had kings. They didn't have kings because God says, I'm your king. And they said, well, God, we don't want you to be our king anymore. We want a king like everybody else. So the next icon, the next part in our journey is called Kings. And that's because Israel wanted to be like everyone else. Saul give, God gives them their first king. His name is Saul. He is big. He is handsome. He is ripped. He is basically me 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. Just kidding. Um, he, but he was full of jealousy and envy. And that what happens is this cycle where they go through king after king after king, and the kings continue to make mistake after mistake after mistake and lead the whole country astray that God has to keep coming in on this sin cycle and forgive them and restore them. But one of the most, probably the most um, iconic king in this part of the Bible is um, King David. Um, You guys have maybe heard him. He's the David that killed Goliath. Um, He starts out great. He's a man after God's own heart he's chosen as king at 12, 13 years of age. Um, then at 15, 16 years of age, he goes out and the Philistines are fighting the Israelites and Goliath walks out. He's nine foot nine, you know, total stud. David goes out and kills him with a stone, like hits him, with a sl- hits him in the head with a sling. And the Bible is completely not boring if you read it. David actually goes, stands over him after he knocks him down, takes Goliath's sword and cuts his head off and then takes it and goes, Freedom! I don't know what he says, but I'm sure blood was like spurting out of the neck. It was awesome. Like you want to read the Bible. It's incredible in his stories. Um, But uh, he has incredible military victories after he becomes king. And then... David begins a downward slide where he sees uh, starts making horrible decisions. He sees Bathsheba, uh, a, a woman bathing on her roof while he's at the on the roof of his kingdom, uh, of his palace, and um, he decides he wants to have her, so he commits adultery with her, finds out that her husband, uh, no, he knows that her husband is the leader of his army, and he, uh, one of the leaders in his army, and he actually has Uriah killed to cover up his adultery because he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant. So he kills Uriah, he lies about it, and then he goes into hiding about it. There's this incredible turn in David's story um, that reveals the truth from the king's period, and this is what you're filling the blanks are. And that's this playing with temptation leads to devastation 100% of the time. You want devastation in your life? Play with temptation. You want to destroy people in your life? Play with temptation. You want to destroy the future that you have in your life? Play with temptation. How we handle and navigate temptation can shape our life and our legacy. And I'll just put it this way. When we are not where we're supposed to be, because David was not where he was supposed to be, when we're not where we're supposed to be, we see things we're not supposed to see, and we do things we're not supposed to do, and we pay more than we ever wanted to pay. And I'll just say that again. When we're not where we're supposed to be. We see things we're not supposed to see, we do things we're not supposed to do, and we pay far more than we wanted to pay. So that's the lesson learned from David and the learn of the kings. Be careful with your free time because those choices will eventually become your legacy. Next icon, crown split. After David, eventually the nation splits into the northern Israel, north Israel, south Judah, mass disobedience causes this split, sin breaks relationship. So at this time where there's two kingdoms, God starts sending prophets to the people, Jeremiah, Micah, Isaiah, Malachi, Habakkuk, to warn people to turn back from their sin and turn back towards God. And so here's the the kind of the truth to fill in your blank. When we seek a different king than God, we live divided. When we seek a different king than God, we live divided. When Jesus is my king, he leads us toward unity with others, not division. But when we we seek a different king than God, we live divided. And God is always about unity and reconciliation, and he always makes the first move. And maybe today, maybe what you're walking away with today is you've got some some, uh, relationships in your life where there needs to be reconciliation, and you need to turn back to Jesus, and Jesus is going to turn you towards unity not division. The next icon is eviction. God sent prophets to to talk to Israel. No one listened. He sent them to the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. No one would listen. Um, Eventually God gives them over to their enemies. He kind of takes his hands off. He says, okay, if you're not gonna listen to me, I can't help you. And I'm telling you, we do this all the time in our lives when God is saying, this is what I want you to do, this is how I want you to do it, and we continually choose to not do it. You know what we do? We tie God's hands behind his back. He says, I can't bless you. I wanna bless every part of your life, but when you're walking away from me, when you're living in sin, I can't bless you. And so that's what happens with, uh, with, with, in this part of the Old Testament. First, Assyria takes the north. And they're completely wiped out by the Assyrians and taken captive. The Babylonians take the south, completely overrun it, and all of a sudden Israel is no more. They're in complete captivity because they tied God's hands by being disobedient on and on and on and on. And God's just saying, okay, I can't help you anymore. I have to take my hands off the wheel because you won't let me drive. But as always, you're filling the blank, and this is what you've got to remember about God, God always rebuilds what we destroy. God always rebuilds what we destroy. God always rebuilds what we destroy. Eventually through Nehemiah and the next one, they make their way back to the promised land and God makes sure that there's a remnant of Israel, of Israelites. And he takes what's left of the pieces and he begins to show us again who we can be with him, which is what God will do to the pieces of your life. If it's blown apart and there are pieces strewn all over the ground, God will come in if you will turn towards him and pick up those pieces and begin to put back together your life and make it more beautiful and stronger than it was before, which gets us to the next section. Um, It's called U-Turn. God brings his people back to rebuild and renovate. And uh, the fill in the blanks are, even when we mess up and walk away, God is still our father. God never forgot about them. Even when we mess up and walk away, God is still our father. Even when you mess up and walk away from God, he never stops loving you. He never stops being your dad. He never stops caring about the whole sum of your life. He never stops pursuing you, even when we mess up and walk away. God is still our father. So Nehemiah and Ezra come in, and they begin to rebuild the city, and rebuild the kingdom of Israel. But, alas, they go back into the sin cycle... And Malachi says, you're still not living for the Lord after all he's done for you. And so now you're under another curse. So the story started under the curse of sin when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and it ends in the the Old Testament under a curse. Again, we come to the conclusion, we can't do this on our own without God's help. We always make a mess of our lives and God always makes it his masterpiece. Now, before I give you the final um, icon, we are going to receive our offering. Um, So ushers, if you guys can come down Um, If you're visiting with us today, uh, just let the basket go by. We're grateful you're here. The service is our gift to you. Um, For those of you that call Kensington home, this is where we give back to God from what he's blessed us with. And um, for those of you that give online, thank you for being so consistent in your giving. Um, And I'll just say this, the easiest way to give and support the mission that we're on is through our online giving at kensingtonorlando.org slash give. Um, You can jump online and give uh, give that way as well. Um, And I would love to encourage you to do that. Um, But but here's the deal. I want to get us to the 10th icon. And the 10th icon is this. God is silent. God's just silent at the end of the Old Testament. The ends the Old Testament with a promise. Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their children to their fathers. And you're filling the blank there. It's just God is a restorer. It ends with a promise of just God will one day restore. He'll restore nations. He'll restore your family. He'll restore you. He'll bring healing and forgiveness to you. He takes our mess and makes it his what? Okay, yeah, all right. Woo. Go team. Okay, he takes our mess and makes it his what? Yeah. Yeah. He wants to take your mess and make it what? A masterpiece. a masterpiece. And let me just tell you, he's the only one that can. You keep trying. You fail every time. But man, you let him in. God will begin to make a masterpiece out of your life. Why? Because we can't do it on our own. You can't do it on your own. You need a Savior. You need the promised one that God promised and In Genesis 3, at the beginning of this Old Testament, God started promising there was a Savior coming. We now know who that is. It's Jesus. And I'll just tell you, life is way better when you do it God's way than you do it your own way. So follow God. Follow his word. Follow what he tells you to do. Find someone to hold you accountable because life is better his way than our way. Because God takes our messes and makes them what? His masterpiece. That's what he does. And I just want to close with this. Um, we're going to close with God being silent for 400, 400 plus years. God doesn't say anything. At the end of the Old Testament, God goes silent until the New Testament starts. And it starts beautifully. Because all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Jesus. How he restores and remakes and redeems. And he wants to do that in your life and in mine. And a number of months ago, maybe the beginning of this year, late last year, I just felt like God really wanted me and us to start ending every service with giving people an opportunity to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And we did it before every now and then when it fit. But it just got to the point where Jesus kind of spoke to me. God just said, hey, Kevin, every week there's people that are on the edge of faith. And all I need is that moment to just pray and invite me in. And so why don't you do that at the end of every message? And so we just began doing that. And I want to do that here. Because when you look at the whole of the Old Testament and you're looking for Jesus, do you realize you see him through every page? God, through the miraculous nature of his word, is just pointing to the Savior that's coming, the Savior that's coming, the Savior that's coming. Starting in Genesis 3, there's a Savior coming. There's a Savior coming. There's someone that's going to redeem the whole world. There's someone that's going to save you for all of eternity. And every week, we get the opportunity as a church to invite people to accept Jesus Christ into their life as their Lord and Savior. And Scripture just says, when you do that, when you invite Jesus in, he comes in and makes his home there. He brings forgiveness, redemption, and eternity in heaven. And he begins to make your mess his masterpiece. And so I want to stop the service right now. And I just want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your head with me. With everybody in the room, just close your eyes and bow your head. And if you are ready to step across the line of faith where you've been coming for long enough and you understand what this means. And maybe it's a little new to you and you're not ready yet. That's okay. But this is for those of you that are like, hey, I've been holding back on this and God's been tapping me on the shoulder and I know he's just been nudging me. If you're ready to accept Jesus, I want to ask you to just pray with me and make my words your words. Say them from your heart to God's. There's nothing special about the words. You don't have to say them out loud, but you can say to God something, about, uh, something like this. God, today is my day. I want to step across the line of faith and accept your son, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. I believe that he came to this earth and died on the cross to pay for my sins so that I might be in relationship with you. And so, God, right now, I ask that you would forgive me, forgive me for my sins, help me lead a new life. I invite you in to be my Lord and Savior, to give me strength beyond what I'm capable of on my own, so that I might live my life for you. And so today, I surrender. In your holy name, amen.